This is a Rooster Teeth production. February 1st, 1991. U.S. Air Flight 1493, a Boeing 737 with 89 people on board, is about to land at Los Angeles' LAX airport. After an uneventful flight from Columbus, Ohio, the crew is trying to contact the tower to confirm they are cleared to land on runway 24 left. After a short delay, the tower gets back to the crew and confirms they are clear to land on 24 left. The plane touches down smoothly, and as the nose of the plane comes down and the gear touches the runway, the pilots realize to their horror that there is another plane on the runway. With no time to evade, the 737 slams into the back of the plane on the runway, and they both burst into flames and skid off the runway immediately. Why was there another plane on the runway? Who was to blame for this deadly oversight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. We're breaking the illusion. Good afternoon. Maybe good evening, depending on when you're listening. Oh, that's true. Well, it's good morning for us. You made me gasp whenever it's like it touches ground and then there's another plane on the runway. I was like, <gasps> yeah, um, we'll get into the nitty gritty of it. But the pilots of the 737 do not see the other plane as they're coming into land and they don't oh. see it even like when they're main landing gear touches down it's not until like the nose because you know the nose of the plane is still up for uh-huh. a little bit it's not until the nose comes down and the nose oh. gear touches the runway that they see there's another plane right in front of them that's wild but before we get into the nitty-gritty i do want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at black box down pod on twitter and instagram i was looking at our twitter the other day uh-huh we should have more followers we have a lot we have a good amount but you right now we, we have like nineteen thousand followers but more people listen you really yeah. should be uh, following us and re- checking out our social media. Especially on Facebook. Oh, and Facebook too. That's right. Yeah. Because everyone is on Facebook. Now, you may not, I don't know how much you use Facebook. It might just be something that you talk to your, like, you know, mom and dad with or family, whatever. We got a Facebook page. We got pe- uh, discussions going on there. We got people commenting and stuff. So go, go like our Facebook page or Instagram, you know, whatever. They're all good. They're all good. I guess maybe that's it. Maybe that's the way I should think about it. Like, because we have like another 16,000 on Instagram. I don't know off the top of my head on Facebook. Maybe people are just following one, the one that they, that they, the platform that they use. Okay. I'll think about it that way, Chris. Thank you. you well, you no, 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 no. Better. Think about it as in like, hey, you can follow them all. And then, uh, and then you see uh, wherever, wherever, whatever you're on that, that day, you know? That's true. Share the, the love. Share the social media love. Yeah. Okay. So this was, uh, a U.S. Air flight, like I said. U.S. Air eventually becomes U.S. Airways years later and then eventually gets merged mm-hmm. into American Airlines. So U.S. Airways does not exist anymore, but you know, rewind time back in 1991, it was U.S. Air. So that's what we're talking about. U.S. Air flight 1493, like I said, it was a passenger flight. It was from Syracuse, New York to San Francisco, but it had stops in Washington, D.C., Columbus, Ohio, and Los Angeles back on February 1st, 1991. Mm-hmm. Right before my 13th birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, the happy old birthday. <laughs> when the plane reached Washington, D.C., there was a crew change. And for the remainder of the legs of the flight, the flight was crewed by Captain Colin Shaw, who was 48 years old with 16,300 flight hours. And First Officer David Kelly, who was 32 years old and had about 4,300 flight hours. The airplane was still fairly new. Was, at the time, it was a six-year-old Boeing 737. And uh, there were 83 passengers and four flight attendants on board. So that's a total of 89 people on that plane. Okay. The other plane involved... It was a SkyWest Airlines flight. It was SkyWest Airlines flight 5569. Uh, it was a flight from Los Angeles International Airport to the LA Palmdale Regional Airport. Super short flight. If you were to drive from LAX to the Palmdale Airport, it's about a 70-mile drive. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, isn't that like just 
in it's not far. the same county even? Yeah, it's like over the mountains. Like you fly yeah. like northeast to LAX, go over the mountains and it's over there. But you know how traffic is in LA. Yeah, you yeah. know, it can be awful. Well, and it's connecting flights and stuff sometimes. Uh, well, I doubt anyone's connecting in Palmdale though. <laughs> uh, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but maybe someone like someone's flying back, right? They're going, yeah. maybe they live out over there and they've got to connect in LAX. Like, maybe that's what it is. So this plane was crewed by Captain Andrew Lucas, who was 32 years old, had about 8,800 flight hours. And first officer, Frank Prentice, who was 45 years old with about 8,000 hours. And this airplane was uh, a Fairchild Metroliner. It's uh, one of those twin propeller airplanes. So it's not a big jet like the 737. It's not like a single engine or a single yeah. propeller, you know, uh, commercial aviation plane. It's a twin propeller Metroliner with 10 passengers on board. Okay, only 10 people. So it's... 10 and the crew and the captain and first officer. So 12 total. Just, just so mentally can kind of picture it. What's the p- capacity of that plane? So, you know, airlines have their discretion as far as like how many seats they're going to put on a plane, you know, how Uh crowded it is. So I can give you a general rule. In general, this plane might hold 19 passengers or so. Okay. So, yeah, it's pretty small. Yeah. It's it's not huge at all. It's It's cozy. uh, Yeah. It's not even as big as, you know, we've talked about some of the other like uh, ATR uh, planes Mm -hmm. that are, you know, those are even bigger than this one. This one's still, it's a relatively small plane. I don't know if I've ever even actually flown in one of these. I, I yeah. bet I've never flown in one of these planes. I don't think I've been in a plane that small. Okay, so that U.S. Air Flight, the 737, it took off from Columbus at 1.17 p.m. Pacific time, uh, you know, L.A.'s Pacific time. And that leg was uneventful, of course. And upon arrival into the L.A. area, Flight 1493 was cleared for approach, and at 5.57 p.m., they were cleared to intercept the ILS for runway 24 right and maintain an altitude of 10,000 feet. At 5.59 p.m., air traffic control asked the crew if they had the airport in sight, and the captain replied that he did. And at this point, you know, they're about 25 miles from the airport. Mm-hmm. The flight was then cleared for a visual approach for runway 24 left. Oh, and the crew no. responded with, just to confirm, the visual approach is to 24 left, to which the controller replied, that's correct. I know this seems like this could be really bad, but they're checking here, right? Like, yeah. They're confirming. You, you know, you told us 24 right before, we're going to confirm, we're on 24 left, and the controller's saying, yes, 24 left. They're doing what they should be doing here. Yeah. They then switched to the tower frequency, you know, and at this time of day, the horizon's starting to get dark. So the first officer lined up visually for runway 24 left, but he used the ILS glide scope for 24 right in his initial vertical flight path because there was no operating ILS for 24 left. So not a big deal. He's just kind of like using the ILS for 24 right to kind of cheat and make sure he's lined up on 24 left as much as he can. Okay. And so they run parallel with each other then? Yes. They have the same number like this. Typically, you can bet that they're running parallel and they use left and right to designate, you know, which one's on the left and which one's yeah. on the right. Okay. So instead of going 24 right, they just kind of scooch over a little bit and like, okay, not this runway, scooch over, use the one on just to the left of it. But, but if you say they use left and right to differentiate it, but wouldn't that change depending upon what direction you're coming from? That's a great question, Chris. So... They say it's runway 24 because the heading of this runway is roughly 240 degrees. If you're coming in the other okay. direction, you're going 80 degrees. So that becomes runway 8 instead of runway 24. Oh. Wait, is okay. that right? Runway 6. I'm sorry. Runway 6. I did the math wrong in my head. You're going 60 degrees. So it becomes runway 6 gotcha. left and runway 6 right. So runway 6 left is the same as runway 24 right. And runway 6 right is the same as runway 24 left. Are they labeled as such? Or is it yes. just... Okay. So if you're approaching on the runway 24 side, you'll see the 24 lettering uh, when you get over the runway. But if you're approaching from the runway 6 side, you'll see the 6. Okay. So yeah, they, I mean, they, they've thought it through <laughs> so that it's not confusing. It just changes depending <laughs> on what direction you're coming from. So at around the same time all this is going on, at about 5.58 p.m., 
Skywest Airlines flight 5569 had begun to taxi to runway 24 left for its departure to Palmdale. Three minutes later, flight 5569 advised the ground controller they were number two in line behind an Aeromexico flight and they were advised to hold short at Tango for now. And Tango's running uh, the taxiways. I think we've talked about that before, like how all like it's like the on ramps and the off ramps for the runways, and they're all labeled, and the taxiways have different labels as well. So they're basically being hold, told to hold at the one label Tango. A minute later, flight 5569 was instructed to taxi via Tango to 45 to uniform to 24 left. So they're basically just giving them directions on how to get to the runway. I'm not 100% clear, but it seems like at the time, some of the taxiways at LA had number designations. That's why I said 45. That's really not a thing anymore. They've been renamed since then. Mm-hmm. So there is no 4-5 on the, out there anymore. Now they're all letters at this point. But back then, those were the instructions that they were given. At 6.03 p.m., Flight 5569 reported to air traffic control. They were at 45, and they would like to go from here if we can. So try to enter the runway at a closer location so they can take off sooner. Remember, it's not a big plane. They don't need the entire runway. Yeah. The tower controller instructed SkyWest 5569 to taxi up and hold short of 2-4 left. That means don't get on the runway. Just stop. Just short of it. And the crew complied with that. At 604, US Air 1493 contacted the same tower controller and said they were inside Roman. And Roman is one of those fixed ILS markers for the runway 24 right. It's about eight miles out from the runway. We've talked about okay. some of these navigation points before. I think when we did the Malaysia Airlines flight, we talked about these quite a bit. But yeah. anyway, they're at Roman. It's just one of the markers eight miles away from the runway. Okay. This transmission was actually not acknowledged by the controller. A few seconds later, the controller contacted SkyWest 5569 and said, taxi in a position and hold runway 24 left. Traffic will cross downfield. And this means pull out on the runway, but don't mm-hmm. go because there's going to be cross traffic on the runway. So wait, pull out onto the runway. Right. But don't take off because there's going to be someone crossing the runway. Okay. And SkyWest acknowledges and they lined up onto runway 24 left. So now you have the US Air coming in to land on runway 24 left. You've got the SkyWest 5569 on runway 24 left. And you've got a third plane crossing runway 24 left further down. Why is there so much on one runway? Well, LA is very busy. Okay. There's a lot going on here. Uh, in fact, it's so busy. On average, at LAX, a plane arrives or departs every 50 seconds. Okay. There is constant traffic. The air traffic controllers are just trying to manage, like, you know, moving everyone around as fast as they can, as efficiently Uh as they can. Nothing is too out of the ordinary yet, except for the fact that they told SkyWest to get on the runway and there's a plane coming in. There's a little more that's going to happen here in a minute. Okay. So I remember I said there was traffic that was crossing downfield. Well, down the runway was Wings West 5006, who was waiting to cross runway 24 left. However, the crew for this flight had unintentionally switched off from the tower frequency and the controller was unable to issue a clearance to them to cross the runway, which is why SkyWest 5569 ends up sitting there for a bit. Okay. Eventually, Wings West flight realizes the error and they switch back to the tower and they begin to cross the runway at 6.05 p.m. But they realize, okay, so they, they switch back to thing and then do they receive the transmission? Is it like delayed or? They get back in touch with the tower and they say, okay. I, I don't know verbatim what they say, but they're like, hey, sorry, we switched our radio frequency. Uh, we didn't hear you guys. And the tower says, okay, I was wondering what happened. You can cross runway two, four left now. Okay. And they're just, what, just, they're on the ground, just kind of like. They're just taxiing. Taxiing across it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a few seconds later, the captain of US Air 1493 transmitted a second radio call to the tower saying they were coming in for 24 left. The controller then cleared US Air 1493 to land 24 left. You see what happened here. The tower got distracted with the Wings West airline because they couldn't contact them and forgot that SkyWest is just sitting there on the runway. Yeah. 
they forgot that there was just so, so the other plane had at this point already taxied across correct? right and now they should have cleared skywest 5569 to take off but at this point now skywest has been forgotten they forgot about the pl- and it's just sitting there and how right. how much time it's passed right now between skywest being told to like wait there at 24 left it's only been about a minute only a minute at about 604 is when the tower told sky west to get out onto 24 left and then it wasn't until 605 that wings west began crossing the runway so it was that one minute of distraction uh-huh where they weren't responding and yeah right so if wings west had not switched off well i mean the speculation you can speculate if wings west had been on the correct frequency if they had crossed at the time that they were expected to, and then SkyWest was cleared to take off, this probably would have been okay. Yeah, okay. But you know, we're still in the middle of it, actually, here at this point. So, like I said, the controller had just cleared the U.S. air flight to land 2-4 left. The captain acknowledged this instruction at 6.06, and this was the last transmission that was received from 1493. The controller then turned their attention to some other flights that were awaiting departure. <sighs> and U.S. Air 1493 touched down on the runway about 1,500 feet from the approach end, and the crew deployed the thrust reversers. As the first officer lowered the nose, he noticed an airplane on the runway immediately in front of and below him. Uh, The first officer could see his landing lights reflecting off the propellers of the SkyWest flight in front of him. He hit the brakes, but there was, you know, there's just not enough time Mm, to stop the plane or move out of the way. Right as the nose gear contacted the runway, flight 1493 collided with 5569, causing an explosion and fire upon impact. Oh, no. The two planes slid to the left side of the runway into an unoccupied fire station. All 12 on board the SkyWest 5569 were killed, and 20 passengers and two crew members were killed from U.S. Air 1493. Out of 89, right? Yes. Uh, however, there were also 13 serious injuries and 17 minor injuries. And on top of that, one of those passengers who was seriously injured succumbed to their injuries later and passed away 31 Ugh. days after the accident. So there were a total of 21 passengers and two crew members who ended up passing away on the U.S. Air flight, uh, which left 66 survivors. As far as the planes, you know, like, they were both absolutely destroyed uh, by the impact forces of the collision and the fire. The Fairchild Metroliner was valued at $1.6 million, and the 737 was valued at $20 million. Man. You know, when we're talking about it here, we have the luxury of knowing, you know, we, we know what happened, right? So we can talk about yeah. it, like, from all these different perspectives. So to us, I think at this point, it seems pretty cut and dry. I think, actually, in the moment when this incident happened, the people in the tower thought that the U.S. air flight touched down and then exploded. They didn't realize that there were two oh. planes involved in the collision. It wasn't until the rescue operations, the firefighters got out there that they start, you know, putting the fire out. They found a propeller. And that's when they're like, oh no, there's two oh, planes here. No. That's how, you know, muddled it is in the moment. Like nobody knows exactly what's going on. Everyone's just trying to get out there, put the fire out, help any survivors. And that's when they realize there's a second plane under here. Oh man. And that also was a testament to, I'm sure, how much smoke and oh yeah the disaster of the scene mm-hmm. like i said they slid off the runway as well into uh an unused building which you know the 737 uh hit on its left side on the on the pilot side oh so they hit a building yeah it was a an unoccupied fire station when you said fire station in my head i was like oh well that's convenient it's a spot where they I don't know, like for dealing with fires, that didn't make sense. But in my head, it was like an empty lot, not a no, no, actual. No. It was a building. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really bad. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB, and on February 11th, they conducted a lighting and conspicuity exercise in order to find out how easy it could have been for the U.S. Air Flight to see the SkyWest plane on the runway. So basically, they put a similar Metroliner on the ground, and mm-hmm. then they flew up in a helicopter to simulate the view from an airplane on approach. Yeah. They put the Metroliner in three locations on the ground. 
The first place was the intersection of Uniform and Taxiway 45. The second position was holding short of runway 24 left at Taxiway 45. And the final location was on the center line of runway 24 left at the point where the collision occurred. When the Metroliner was on the center line, they put the airport and runway lights to the same settings as the night of the accident, and they also tested with a few other lighting conditions as well as the, uh, in the other locations. And there were five main results from the test. First, the Metroliner's white-tailed navigation light blended with the runway center line lighting, especially when the center line lighting was set to step two. So, I mean, you couldn't even see the, the white light on the tail of the plane. It just blended right into the lighting. Okay. Second, the Metroliner's red anti-collision beacon at the top of the vertical stabilizer was not as conspicuous as anticipated. The effect of the variety of lights on the airport surface combined with the runway lights appeared to diffuse the intensity of this beacon. You've probably seen this red anti-collision beacon before on planes. It's like the flashing red light atop of uh -huh. the vertical stabilizer. Just the beep, beep, yeah. Right. It just couldn't be seen. It was diffused because of all the different lights that were going on. Okay. Third, the Metroliner's taxi, recognition, wingtip navigation, and strobe lighting were not readily detectable. Fourth, the Metroliner's white strobe light in the tail of the airplane was the most visible. However, with the runway centerline lighting at step two, the airplane's strobe's luminescence blended with the centerline lighting. So again, there's a light that's visible, but mm -hmm. because it's lined up right on the centerline, it, it blends into the other yeah. lights that are already there. Yeah, it's like just on top of each other, blending. Right. Yeah. Fifth, offsetting the approach helicopter to either side of the Metroliner enhanced the ability to detect the red anti-collision beacon and the white navigation and strobe lights in the tail of the airplane. So this was just, the 737 was coming in perfectly on that center line and the Metroliner was lined up perfectly on the center line and the lights just all blended into the lights oh. that were already on the runway. It was really, ended up being difficult to see. I know you might, yeah. before I explain all this, you might be thinking like, how do you not see there's a plane right on the runway in front of you? Yeah. It's, like it's, it's getting dusk, it's kind of dark, and it just camouflages into the lights. Mm -hmm. The NTSB also conducted some interviews of tower personnel, and they were told that a series of four ramp lights on the northernmost portion of Terminal 2 complex were a restriction to vision during the hours of darkness because of their height, brightness, and relative line of sight to taxiways 45, 47, and runway 24 left. So basically they're complaining, they're saying, there are lights in the way. We can't see out to that part of the runway from the tower because oh. there's lights that block their vision to look out there. So even if the tower was to visually look out there, they would be blinded by other lights uh, in the way. Look at just too many lights everywhere. Yeah. So the NTSB was presented with a letter dated February 6, 1991 between the Terminal 2 Complex Manager and the Chief of Operations for Los Angeles DOA. The letter talked about how on May 31st, 1988, so almost three years earlier, mm -hmm. the tower contacted someone regarding glare from the southernmost apron lights and asked them to be shielded or redirected, and they were. However, there was no talk about the northernmost lights, and the NTSB could not find any documentation about their obstruction of view when in nighttime. Mm -hmm. uh, when they carried out the experiment with the Metroliner and the helicopter, the participants in the tower agreed that the lighting fixtures mounted on the roof of Terminal 2 produced a glare that impeded visual observation of the area where the collision occurred, but did not totally block the view of the accident area. So they're saying, yeah, the lights were a problem, but it, it didn't totally block their view, mm -hmm. but it, it made it more difficult. It was, it yeah. was harder to see. I know everyone, including me, is guilty of agreeing to listen to whatever podcast someone recommends and then never actually getting around to it. Definitely do not let that happen here because you'll want to give the Jordan Harbinger show a listen. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest and there's something for everyone and I mean everyone. Uh, one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who discusses techniques on getting people to like and trust you. Disturbing, but also useful. In another episode, we hear from cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. You know, like a real life Indiana Jones kind of thing. 
There's also some episodes here recently. There was one with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. If you're a little older, you may remember him from the uh, Iran-Contra scandal years ago. Also, there's another episode with Leah Rimini, who uh, you may be familiar with, with uh, her work talking about Scientology. Uh, I really enjoy the show. I think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Harbinger, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. So check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you get your podcasts. Let's be honest, grocery store trips suck. They're a burden on us, our wallets, and even the planet. If you relate to that even a little, it's time to say hello to HelloFresh. HelloFresh cuts out those trips to the grocery store so you can get cooking and the best part, eating in just about 30 minutes or less. Plus, HelloFresh is cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store and restaurant meals, but just as delicious. So HelloFresh is already saving you time and money. What more can you ask for? Well, they also work to save the planet. HelloFresh is the first carbon-neutral meal kit and reduces your food waste by sending you pre-portioned ingredients. And in 2020, HelloFresh donated over 4 million meals and didn't stop there. Now they're stepping up food donations to local communities. HelloFresh is so convenient. It's so great. I mean, I made a pasta dish the other day that I just couldn't believe. It uh, it was just absolutely so delicious and wonderful. I saved it. And on top of the pasta dish, there were uh, other dishes in there just that were just as good. I made a flatbread pizza. That was awesome. I, I mean, I can't say enough about how delicious the things that I made were. And it was super quick to do. I can't believe how quick it and easy it is. Like it probably was faster than getting in my car, going to pick up takeout and coming back. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown12. Use code BlackBoxDown12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown12 and code BlackBoxDown12. That's BlackBoxDown and the number one and the number two, by the way, for 12 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Do you think you deserve better, especially when it comes to car and home insurance? Well, I know I do. That's why I put my policy to the test with Gabby. Their name literally stands for Get a Better Insurance. Get it? G-A-B-I? Gabby? Gabby's the one true comparison platform with real rates. They give you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Nationwide, Progressive, Travelers, all in one place. You can use your exact insurance information to get started, and in just minutes, you'll see quotes for the exact same coverage you already have completely free. I used it myself. You just link it to your current insurance. That way it sees exactly what you have already and shows you what the exact same coverage would cost with these other platforms. Uh, in my case, uh, it showed me I was already already had the best deal. I was happy with what I had already, so I didn't have to switch. But you could see how much money you could save yourself. And that's a great thing. I didn't see that I could save money anywhere else. I just stuck with my current insurance. It took me just a couple of minutes to find out and be reassured. If you check, it could just take you a couple of minutes. Maybe you'll find out you could save a ton of money. So Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. Plus, they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. Put your policy to the test like I did. Get a better insurance with Gabby. Uh, it's totally free to check out. There's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash BlackBoxDown. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash BlackBoxDown. Gabby.com slash BlackBoxDown. I know another question people might be asking or thinking about is, well, what about ground radar? Isn't there like radar to detect where planes are when they're taxiing and when they're not in the air? Would that work though? If you're landing, would you have radar just hitting the ground? I well, mean, the, this, this would be for the people in the tower. Okay. That way someone would see, hey, there's already a plane on the runway. We shouldn't clear that other plane to come in and land. Mm -hmm. So Los Angeles is actually equipped with what they call airport surface detection equipment radar system, which is, you know, ground radar. The purpose of the ASDE is to detect principal features on the surface of an airport, including aircraft and vehicular traffic, and it presents an image in the control tower. So it's just a way for the control tower to see 
where vehicles and planes are on the ground so they know if there's something on the runway. Uh One of the big pieces of information derived from the ASDE is the determination that the runway is clear of aircraft and vehicles prior to landing or departure. However, at the time Mm -hmm. of the accident, the north ASDE indicator at the position of the controller for runway 24 left was inoperative and logged out of service. Oh, no. Ground radar was just out of service. The NTSB looked at the documentation of the ASDE and found that since 1986, the system had been unreliable. So five oh. years. I guess this isn't, that's not one of those things, at least at that time, that was mandatory or required to have up? Or I think it was a relatively new thing back then at that time. Uh-huh. It's very standard now. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> this happening today. Yeah. So on January 28th, 1991, which is a few days before this accident, mm-hmm. the Airways facility team manager requested by letter the insurance that the replacement of the ASDE received the highest priority from the FAA Washington headquarters. Oh, The letter stated that because of the lack of supply support and continued extended use of the ASDE, excessive and prolonged outages had been experienced the previous year and it was difficult to maintain the ASDE at a level that would provide consistent, reliable service. So they knew this was a problem. They were, you know, writing the FAA saying, hey, this really needs to be fixed. We need this to be the highest priority. Who are they writing to? The the FAA? Not like the airport? How how does that, who manages it? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know the specifics of how that works as far as, you know, the airport maintenance. It may be that the FAA you know, supplies funds for these kinds of things that the airport mm-hmm. uses. Maybe they, that's what they were writing for. It, it, you know, there's a whole level of bureaucracy as far as the airport management goes that I'm mm-hmm. not familiar with, so I can't say for certain. Okay. What I can say is I do know that the problem they were having with the ground radar at the time was that they needed specific, like, gears and cogs manufactured. Like, they needed a machine shop to make specific parts for them because the radar's always spinning. Like, these cogs would break and these gears would break. Oh, yeah. They just needed a machine shop to make these very specific-sized parts for them to put back into the radar to get it working again. That's weird to think about a radar with cogs and actually moving. In my head, it's almost like more techie than that <laughs> does that make sense yeah well if you think about it, like if you see like radars on boats and stuff it's just like that bar that spins around you know yeah. all it's doing is just like shooting off radio waves essentially and then watching yeah. them bounce back at it and it needs that spin in order to determine you know uh how long it's taking and how far away something is yeah so air traffic controllers at airports use these things called flight strips to help keep track of what flights are doing what and what sequence they're in you've probably seen these in movies it's like the little pieces of paper it's got like the flight number on it and uh, the type of plane. And like you mm-hmm. always see in movies, like uh, in the tower, they're moving these like little blocks around. Yeah, yeah. That's what like the, the flight strips are on those little blocks. So uh, another thing I want to cover here is that the order of frequencies that a pilot contacts when departing an airport is clearance delivery, ground, tower, and departure. I know we like colloquially people think of air traffic controllers just like one frequency, one group of people doing everything. But in reality, it's like there's different controllers for every different step of the way that a plane is going. So the controller on the tower frequency is known as the local controller. On the day of the accident, the controller at clearance delivery forwarded the flight strip for SkyWest 5569 directly to the local controller. In an effort to reduce workload for the ground controller position, LX procedures did not specify the use and handling of flight strips at the ground position. Because of this, an aircraft could request intersection departures with the local controller and the ground controller was relieved from having to coordinate with the local controller and making flight strips accordingly. So basically they're just trying to not involve the ground controller in this process to reduce his or her workload. Just to understand 
what types of controllers. So there's a flight controller and then a ground controller. Is the flight controller the one telling planes to come in and land and take off and the ground controller one telling them to like taxi, move around? Okay, so in this particular scenario we're talking about here where there's four different controllers. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) There's clearance delivery, Uh ground, tower, and departure. So clearance delivery is who the plane might talk to at the gate. Okay. Me like, hey, can we go? Yes, you can go. Now talk to the ground. Ground guides them on the ground, like their name says, through the taxiways and the runway. And then they go to tower, which is the local controller, who then like clears them for takeoff and then departure once they're in the air as far as like where they're going to be going. Okay. That makes sense when you spell it out, but that's a lot of pieces to like all work together. It's a lot, but it's to make sure everyone's focused on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So in this scenario, what I was saying with these flight strips is they were basically taking the flight strip from clearance delivery skipping ground and going straight to tower just to keep ground from getting distracted by all that stuff, which reduces the ground controller's workload, but it also eliminates redundancies and increases the workload for the local controller or the tower controller. Mm -hmm. So without the flight progress strip information, the local controller was required to determine the flight crew's intentions and rely on memory and observations of aircraft moving on the ground to track the progress of these aircraft. No. Yeah, that's not good. So if a controller is unable to recall details, even for a moment, then you know, the possibility of an error happens. Yeah. And, and this was standard? That's the way they did it, yeah. Across all airports? Well, I mean, that's not necessarily across all airports. At LA specifically, this is what they were doing. But that just goes to show there was yeah. no standard. Like, a, an airport could choose to do things the way they wanted to. In this case, that's what LA was doing. So, you know, like I say, if a controller can't remember things, you run into the chance of an error. And when, in this case, in this specific scenario, when the controller tried to contact Wings West flight, the one that was crossing the runway, Mm -hmm. they became distracted with the additional workload since they couldn't be contacted right away because, like I said, the Wings West flight was on a different frequency by accident. Mm -hmm. The NTSB notes that the effect of this distraction was evident because the controller identified Wings West 5006 as Sundance 518, which was a flight she had cleared four and a half minutes earlier. Oh, So, like, again, she's working off her memory and it got a little fuzzy. The NTSB also believes that during her conversation with Wings West 5006, she became preoccupied and forgot that SkyWest 5569 was on the runway. Because right after contacting Wings West 5006, there was another flight, Wings West 5072, which was also a metro liner, and called the tower and let them know they were ready to depart. That's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on. They have a lot to manage. Local controller asked if they were taking off from an intersection or using the full length of the runway. Wings West 5072 responded saying full length, and the local controller began a search for their flight strip. The flight strip for 5072 was not given to her, so she had to go look for it, which caused another distraction. Uh. Local controller forgot that SkyWest 5569 was on the runway, ended up mistaking the Metro Liner for WingsWest 5072 as SkyWest 5569. And so she's developing this mental picture of where everything is, and in her mind, the runway's clear because she's forgotten about SkyWest. Yeah, that's just it's just too much. Too many planes all doing different things. And if it's not like a visual representation, like the we said the the chart graph bar thing? Yeah. Yeah, I could see how you could totally get that mixed up. Right, and like I said, she couldn't find the flight strip for 5072, so she had to go try to find it. And it was only after the accident that the controller realized that Sky was 5569 might have still been on the runway, and she went to her supervisor saying that's what she thinks U.S. Air hit. Oh, no. Because like I said, when the firefighters got out there and they found a propeller, then everyone in the tower starts wondering, what plane is it? You know, they have oh. to like look through, look like... Who, who, who have we not heard from in a little while? They're like going through all of their flight strips, trying to contact everyone and figure out where's, what's the missing plane. Oh my God. That's such a, it's like, what happened? What? There's another plane? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, 
That's wild. So the NTSB believes that the local controller's performance was related to facility procedures in place at LAX that did not allow for lapses in judgment and decision-making and removed human performance redundancies. So the procedures here at LAX were not good. <laughs> they, they introduced problems is what mm-hmm. they're getting at. The local controller was required to assume full responsibility for strip marking and position determination in addition to departure and arrival sequencing. In addition to these duties, the task of working a combined position with helicopter control and performing coordination responsibility to operate that position created a situation that was abnormally burdensome for the local controller to respond to successfully. The NTSB was also unable to determine if the use of ground radar would have prevented this accident. Given the events, the controller would not have had reason for scanning the ground radar specifically in the area of the forgotten aircraft. So they're saying... Even though the ground radar wasn't working, if it was working, it might not have helped because the controller might not have looked at it. They might not have thought to look at it because they, mm-hmm. they forgot the plane was there. Yeah. But it couldn't hurt. You know, I think that it would have been a good thing to have it. Obviously, you know, just a, an extra bit of redundancy. All right. So they have some findings. Air traffic volume and ATC workload at LAX was moderate at the time of the accident. That was moderate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't light, but yeah, it was not as busy as it gets. It probably wasn't at the 50-second takeoff and landing point yet. Mm -hmm. The ability of Los Angeles Air Traffic Control Tower personnel to distinguish aircraft on the runways and other airport traffic movement areas, including the accident site, was complicated by some of the Terminal 2 apron lights, which produced glare. Mm -hmm. Operating procedures at the Los Angeles Air Traffic Control Tower did not provide redundancy comparable to the FAA National Operations Position Standard that required that flight progress strips be processed through the ground controller position. Oh, so I guess the FAA standard <laughs> was that strips did have to go through the ground controller position. Uh, but at LA, they did not do that. So they were, they were going off the books. The local controller forgot that she placed Skywest 5569 into position for takeoff on runway 24 left at the intersection of taxiway 45 because of her preoccupation with another airplane. Yeah, A flight progress strip for uh, Wings West 5072 was earlier misplaced by the clearance delivery controller. If local procedures had required that strips be processed through the ground control position... Misplacement would have been detected and corrected. Because this strip was not present at local controller's operating position, she misidentified an airplane and issued a landing clearance that led to runway collision. So, Mm. you know, if the strip had come through the ground controller, the ground controller would have noticed that he or she didn't have the strip. It would have been Uh rectified at that point instead of getting all the way to the local controller. Yeah. And then, you know, having her having to worry about it at that point. What happened is just misplaced, like somewhere. Yeah, I think clearance delivery never handed it off, if I remember right. Like it was still up at his position. So I think if I remember right, the local controller, she actually had to get up and walk over there to the other position to get it. So it was just like, it was not good. One last finding here. Aircraft external lighting systems required for certification are intended primarily for in-flight conspicuity rather than for conspicuity on airport surfaces. Consequently, the external lighting of Skywest 5569 tended to be indistinguishable from the runway lights when viewed from the cockpit of US Air 1493. So they're just saying the way the lights are designed, they're designed to be more noticeable when you're in the air, not so much on the ground. Okay. In fact, I believe also that at the time, SkyWest procedures did not require them to illuminate their strobe lights until they were cleared for takeoff. Oh. So there were like there were even extra lights that could have been on that they did not have on. But, you know, of course, that changed after this incident. Yeah. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of the accident was a failure of the LA Air Traffic Facility Management to implement procedures that provides redundancy comparable to the requirements contained in the National Operations Position Standards and the failure of the FAA Air Traffic Service to provide adequate policy direction and oversight to its air traffic control facility managers. So they're just saying this way that they did things was not by the book and created this system that led to failure. These failures created an environment in the LA Air Traffic Control Tower 
that ultimately led to the failure of the local controller to maintain an awareness of the traffic station, culminating in the inappropriate clearances of the subsequent collision of the U.S. Air and SkyWest aircraft. Contributing to the cause of the accident was the failure of the FAA to provide effective quality assurance for the air traffic control system. So I assume that's related to mm-hmm. ASDE and some of the lighting glare. Mm-hmm. So they came up with five recommendations here based on this incident. Modify air traffic control procedures at LAX to segregate arrivals and departures to specific runways and provide redundancies as intended in the national operation position standards in the control tower. So now they split the runways up. like Some are for arrival, some are for departure. Mm-hmm. Just to try to make it easier, so that there's not it's not all happening on the same runway. Oh, okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. Evaluate procedures at LAX Tower and determine whether changes are required and implement them if necessary. The evaluation should at least consider runway intersection takeoffs, position and hold clearances, displaced runway thresholds, hazards associated with runway crossing traffic, local assist controller, ASDE use, and maintenance. So just evaluate all of the procedures, mm-hmm. <laughs> make sure they're all okay, and Change them if necessary. And of course, check on the ground radar, make sure it's working. Mm -hmm. Conduct a one-time examination of the airport lighting at all U.S. tower controller airports to eliminate or reduce restrictions to visibility from the control tower to the runways and other traffic movement areas. So go to every tower in the U.S. and make (laughs) sure that everything is visible, that there's no... uh, that all the airport lighting is adequate and not blinding anyone in the tower. Every tower in the U.S. Yes, but, I mean, it's necessary, right? Those are the kinds of yeah. things you want to hear. No, no, that's good. I've just imagined whose job that is. <laughs> I mean, well, there's there's whole government agencies for this, right? Yeah. I mean, we got the FAA, you got the NTSB, you got the local yeah. air traffic control people. We have the infrastructure to do this. So this is a really good thing. But, yeah, I, I, like you're right. It's, it's one of those things you're like, oh, man, this is going to take a while. <laughs> Redefine the airplane certification coverage compliance standards for anti-collision light installations to ensure that the anti-collision lights on an aircraft in position on a runway are clearly visible to the pilot of another aircraft preparing to land or take off on that runway. So just evaluate plane lights. Make sure they're visible. If a plane's on the runway, If they're, they make sure they're visible by another plane that's coming in to land on that runway. Yeah. Evaluate and implement suitable means for enhancing the conspicuity of aircraft on airport surfaces during night or periods of reduced visibility. Include in this effort measures such as the displacement of an aircraft away from the runway center line where applicable and use the conspicuity enhancements such as high-intensity strobe lighting and logo lighting by aircraft on active runways and encourage operators of airplanes certified prior to September 1st, 1977 to upgrade their airplanes to present higher-intensity standards for anti-collision light installations. So basically, <laughs> let's just fix all the lights. All planes, yeah. you know, make sure you're using high-intensity lights. And, you know, even people who have older planes that were certified in the past, it's not required, but they're encouraged to upgrade their lights. And at this point now in the year we're in, those old planes are probably not flying anymore. So that's not a concern for us. So nowadays, LAX prioritizes the use of the outboard runways, which are 24 right and 25 left for landings, and the inboard runways, which are 24 left and 25 right for takeoffs. Although mixed operations might occur in certain situations, they try to do this as a general rule. Okay, that's all good. Yeah. I talked about this in our most recent episode, uh, the Aeromexico flight, how uh, 2-4 right is the, you know, one of those outboard runways that's used for landings. That's the runway. If, you, if you're in Los Angeles, if you live in Los Angeles and you drive down uh, Lincoln Boulevard right next, to the, right next to LAX, that's runway 2-4 right that you're seeing. So you see planes land there sometimes when you're driving on uh, Lincoln Boulevard right next to LAX. Just a little bit of trivia. If you're in the LA area (laughs) and you want to see a plane land, you can drive down uh, Lincoln Boulevard. 
Additionally, there was a new control tower that was built at LAX in a more central location, and they made it significantly taller with a better vantage point so they could see all runways and critical taxiways at the airport. So, I mean, okay. they, yeah, there's an entirely new tower, so all that, it's not an issue anymore. So, LA had always been kind of a, a problem spot when it comes to runway incursions, like planes getting too close or, you know, getting on runways when they shouldn't be. In fact, as recently as 2007, there were 21 reported runway incursions at LAX. 21? Yeah, well, like one almost every two weeks. They, they realized this is a problem. Uh, this is un- kind of unrelated to this incident. But, uh-huh. you know, as of April 2009, they installed a new lighting system on the taxiways and the runways. It's like this automated system where the lights turn red so the pilots will see, like, if there's a conflict. And so it, it kind of guides the pilots and tells them when to stop to avoid conflict when they're taxiing and when they're on the runways. And now, like, their runway incursions are practically gone now, ever since they put in these new status lights. We say an incursion. What does that mean exactly? You could think of it like oh, when a plane gets onto a runway or crosses a runway when it shouldn't, like when there's another okay. plane coming in or taking off. Uh, they refer to those as incursions. So it's a boo-boo, but not a... There's no, act, there's no yeah. collision. Right. No, no one hit anyone, just someone was somewhere that they shouldn't have been. Okay. Those runway status lights were kind of a new thing. I think they were like almost beta tested here back in 2009 when they were installed. But now they're a lot more prevalent. They're not at every airport in the U.S., but not every airport's as busy. You know, they don't need Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, a lot of busy airports do have these kinds of status lights now. And we've talked about similar status lights at other airports in the past. If you remember, we talked about the 747 that hit the construction equipment in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How they were used to, in Singapore, they were used to green lights guiding them all the way down the runway to where they were supposed to be. It's like some airports have systems like this to really help prevent incursions and kind of guide everyone and make sure everything's safe. So, you know, that stuff's becoming way more prevalent now uh, to help prevent incursions and make, you know, flying a lot safer. So you don't have to worry about these kinds of things happening anymore or in the future. Did the flight controller who, who was directing the planes... Did anything happen to her? She resigned. She couldn't do the job anymore. I don't think there was any criminal prosecution or anything yeah. like that. I think, you know, just she quit of her own volition, you know, not after being involved with something like that. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't blame her, honestly. How do you come back? Also, this episode solidified, not that there was any doubt before this, but I don't want to be a flight controller person. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that sounds like an incredibly stressful job. So I don't know if I've ever told you this, Chris, um, you know, We've been working from home now because of uh, the pandemic for a while now. But, you know, Chris and I, we didn't work, we didn't share an office or anything, but we used to work in the same building. And, you know, I used to always wear headphones when I was at my desk. I don't know if you ever Uh noticed that, Chris. I always have headphones on. Lots of times, I'm not even listening to music. There's a website you can go to and listen to air traffic controllers, like streaming over the internet. Normally, I'd be listening to the Austin Tower. Yeah. Uh, and But, you know, like on these websites, you can choose from a whole bunch of towers in the world and you can listen. So like, lots of times I'll be listening to air traffic control and I'll have like like a, a map up of all the planes like around <laughs> Austin. And I'll be like looking at it, like seeing who they're talking to, like who's coming in, who's going uh, and what's going on. Guess that is the weirdest, nerdiest thing. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you know what kind of podcast that I'm hosting right now? No, I know, I know, I know. But it's just I had no idea. Like I never... Like, cause I've walked, I'm sure I've walked up to your desk to talk to you and you were like, like role-playing air traffic. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you go to, it's liveatc.net, like air traffic control, liveatc.net is the, the website I use that I listen to. They've got, they've got a, a mobile app too. I've got it on my phone. Sometimes I play it in my car. It's, so that's like, you're kind of like back, that's like your, your chill 
uh, music, white yeah. noise kind of. Yeah, just like yeah, gonna gonna get this going. Just like ah, uh, get in the zone. <laughs> Man, I I don't know. If, see, I don't know if I could concentrate with that. But I guess if if you listen to it a lot, you can kind it can kind of. Yeah, like I think you know if you listen to air tra- like if you start listening to air traffic controller, you listen at, to like snippets you get really confused. Like, I have no idea what's going on. But if you listen to it a lot and practice, then you're like, oh, I know exactly what's going on. Like, I can I can picture this in my head. So like you're saying, it sounds really intimidating. It seems awful. You know, if you listen to it a bit, it's not that bad. Then, you know, air traffic mm. controls go through training. They obviously know much more yeah. than I do. I've never gone through any training. I just like, I just, I'm just some weirdo on the internet who listens to them. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe if, 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 you know, podcasting and everything else that we do, you ever want a career change, would you do air traffic <laughs> control? Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, maybe maybe I maybe I'll become a pilot. Maybe I'll finally take some flight lessons and, and start flying. Uh, but that's it. That's uh, U.S. Air fourteen ninety three. An awful tragedy. Which uh, I think there were a lot of lessons learned in this one, uh, which make flying a lot safer nowadays. Yeah, that's. I feel bad for the controller. Yeah, the st- stress and the guilt of that. Like they said, they kind of set her up for failure in that position. Yeah. You know, there's just way too much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't done to the FAA standard. Yeah. I want to do one last call to action. I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. And I also want to remind everyone about the other podcast Chris and I have started doing. We have a Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Mm-hmm. Very different from this one. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons & Dragons to enjoy it. It's called Tales from the Stinky Dragon. You get it wherever you get podcasts. Uh, it's just all about like, role-playing and having fun and trying to make each other laugh while playing this game. Yeah, and it's real quick, and uh, they're like 30, 40-minute episodes you can yeah. listen. It's like a radio place. got music and sound effects. It's very fun. Yeah. Give it a listen. Subscribe. Definitely check it out. Yeah, we just have a couple episodes out at this point. Uh, it's, just, it's just starting out, so it's a great time to jump in. Yeah. Thanks for, wa- or, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> we'll be back again uh, next week. Bye. Bye.